0: As Republicans debate the best way to go about repealing and replacing the Affordable Care Act, one program that may see major changes is Medicaid. Last year, Speaker of the House Paul Ryan released a proposal that includes setting per capita caps on federal Medicaid spending. I'm Stephen Morrissey, Managing Editor of the New England Journal of Medicine, and I'm talking with Andrew Goodman Bacon, an Assistant Professor of Economics at Vanderbilt University. Professor Goodman Bacon has co-authored a prospective article about publicly financed medical care before the Medicaid program, and the lessons that that history can offer for the Ryan Plan. Professor Goodman Bacon, you write in your article that a per capita cap is intended to reduce the amount and the variability of federal Medicaid expenditures and provide the states with an incentive to reduce their Medicaid costs. So what evidence do Ryan and other supporters have to back the idea that capping federal spending will inspire states to innovate?
1: I would say that the idea that a per capita cap for federal Medicaid spending will reduce the level and variability of federal spending is mechanical. That's exactly what the policy will do by design. They are hoping that by making states face the full cost of choices that they make in their Medicaid programs, such as who to cover, whether or not to put limits on utilization, and how to reimburse for services, they're hoping that by making states face the full cost of those choices, states will then structure their programs more efficiently and ultimately save money in the entire Medicaid program, both for the states and for the federal government.
0: In fact, in your article, you write that the pre-Medicaid system for publicly financed medical care achieved low spending by putting tight restrictions on just those things. Who could receive care and what services were covered? Could that happen today? How much leeway do states have in limiting the coverage they provide under Medicaid?
1: States operate Medicaid programs under a range of requirements. And this was the original quid pro quo in the Medicaid legislation that was passed in 1965 and implemented across states throughout the rest of the 1960s. The federal government wanted to ensure that states would provide sufficient coverage, that is, fill in the coverage gaps that had existed prior to Medicaid, and cover a well-defined set of people across all states. When Medicaid first started, the federal government offered more generous financing, and that was the open-ended federal-state financing system that governs Medicaid today. And in exchange, the federal government placed requirements on states about what coverage, what groups needed to be covered under Medicaid programs, and what services needed to be covered. And so today, states still operate under many of those requirements. Medicaid eligibility has expanded over time, and new services have obviously come into play. But many of the things that states balk at today are requirements that they cover certain populations with no cost sharing and certain services with no restrictions on utilization. And so in many per capita cap proposals that are being put out right now, states will lose federal reimbursement and in exchange they will gain what's often described as flexibility and often that means that they will no longer need to abide by many of those restrictions. They can limit coverage for certain groups, they can limit utilization for certain kinds of services, they can impose cost sharing on recipients. And this is viewed as a way for states to make their programs more cost-effective. That's the way that the policies are sold right now.
0: Clearly, both states and the federal government would benefit if each Medicaid recipient cost less. Are there strategies for making Medicaid spending more efficient without reducing the number of people who are covered, without reducing the quality of their care?
1: There might be. Many of the new levers that states will gain under these proposals are less about efficiency per se and more about changing the size and the scope of the program. Much of the historical evidence that we offer in our article suggests that that will be the main way that states will respond to restrictions on federal financing. So the historical context for our claim is that prior to Medicaid's passage in 1965, states and the federal government did share the cost of medical care for welfare recipients in the U.S., the way that the federal government financed those pre Medicaid programs was by a capped system, very similar to what Paul Ryan and others have suggested now. We use historical data on the number of people who received those programs and how much was spent on them. And we use some other primary source materials from that time that describe the structure of the pre Medicaid policies. And what we show is that when states received this kind of capped federal financing, rather than operating programs for similar numbers of people covering similar services, but in a more efficient way, in fact, what states did was to just cover fewer people, put strict restrictions on what services could be used and how much they could be used. And in that way, they did achieve low spending, not through efficiency, though, largely just through operating small programs.
0: You say in your article that currently, by increasing tax revenue and reducing cash transfers, Medicaid saves governments $21 billion a year. If we had federal caps on Medicaid spending, how would that affect state budgets, state economies?
1: There is a new literature in economics and among social scientists that is trying to understand how Medicaid's coverage of children in different times throughout history had lasting effects on those kids, both in terms of their health and in terms of their behavior. The conclusion that Medicaid coverage from the 60s is today saving government $21 billion comes from some other work I've done trying to track the effects of Medicaid's introduction in the 60s on cohorts who were kids back then and are adults today. Whether those effects speak to what might happen under the proposed policy changes today really hinges on which groups of Medicaid recipients will be affected by a move to a per capita cap system now. Medicaid is a very heterogeneous program, It covers children, it covers pregnant mothers, it covers disabled adults and the elderly. And we have a range of estimates about whether those groups benefit. Sometimes they do, sometimes they seem not to. Because Medicaid is so heterogeneous and because its effects vary a lot across different periods of time, across different groups of people, it's a very difficult question to know whether changes that are made to the financing today will trigger some of those mechanisms that have been identified in earlier work. They very well might, particularly if states restrict coverage or eligibility for the poorest children. That's a group that seems to benefit a lot from Medicaid coverage. However, if states choose to continue to cover those kids in a similar way as they do now, then perhaps those channels won't really be affected by changes in financing today. It really depends on state decisions.
0: As you said earlier, the Ryan proposal would allow states to impose work requirements on Medicaid recipients, charge them premiums for the coverage. Is there a precedent for those kinds of reforms, and how might they affect coverage and access?
1: Yeah, there is. Indiana, for example, has a Medicaid waiver program now that allows some of those things And many other states have sought permissions to do things like you mentioned, impose work requirements or things like job search requirements or charge premiums or offer recipients savings accounts that they can use to afford new cost-sharing impositions. This speaks to the role of flexibility in these proposals. Many proponents of per capita caps argue that Medicaid is an inflexible program and it binds states in ways that increase costs and force them to provide things they don't want to provide in ways they don't want to provide them. That's the claim. And new flexibilities will allow them to make lots of new beneficial and efficient changes to their programs. One thing that's often not present in those discussions is that Medicaid is a program with many different waiver options today. Sometimes there is a lag between when states apply for waivers and when they receive them. But many different states run many different kinds of Medicaid programs that do in fact deviate from some of these original requirements of the program. And so I think one important issue for specific proposals that would impose this kind of new financing structure, these proposals need to be clear about what new flexibilities are going to be granted to states over what they have right now. So to your original question, are there precedents for these aspects of Medicaid programs? Yes, there are in different states. Currently, states can actually do many of the things that are being discussed in per capita cap proposals.
0: Finally, what's the current outlook for the Ryan Plan and for Medicaid reform in general?
1: Well, as far as I know, the governors recently met with the Trump administration and some governors, such as John Kasich, have come out against a block grant program, which has been proposed in Medicaid many times throughout history and differs slightly from a per capita cap proposal. But they seem to largely support per capita cap proposal. My expertise is primarily in, in the history of the program, but it seems like many of the new proposals that kind of go along with broader ACA repeal efforts would, in fact, include some of these changes to Medicaid financing more broadly. It's also worth noting that several other times in recent history, proposals to change Medicaid's financing structure, either to turn it into a block grant or actually to turn it into per capita caps, have come up for consideration in Congress. In fact, in the 90s, there was, to some extent, bipartisan support for a per capita cap proposal. In those instances, it has not succeeded. So it remains to be seen, I think, what will happen this time around.
0: Thank you, Professor Goodman Bacon.